2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
3: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life.
2: We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life.
3: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Irish Times columnist Chris Johns and Fergal O'Brien of IBEC about Brexit and Budget 2020. But first, Peter Hamilton joins me in the studio to run through some of the major business stories of the week. Peter, you're very welcome. Uh, we're going to start with Ryanair. Some good news for passengers today.
1: That's right. The crisis has been averted. Uh, Ryanair pilots were due to strike from uh, a minute past 12 on Thursday. Yeah, this is for directly employed pilots in Ireland. That's correct. Yeah, who, who are uh, members of the... Uh, I help uh, force a union. Um, So, Ryanair has won a high court injunction today which will stop those pilots from going on strike later this week. Um, So, that means that all flights scheduled to depart on Thursday and Friday will operate as normal. Mm. It's good news for
3: Ryanair, but bad news for the pilots.
1: It is temporarily bad news for the pilots from the perspective that the court has said that... uh, the strike action is prevented until a full hearing of the dispute concerning the roughly 180 pilots can be heard. So, I mean, it is temporarily bad news for them. However, it's at this point we don't really know what the unions are looking for and what forced them to cause this strike in the first place. Ryanair told us that it was uh, that their captains were seeking a significant pay rise from the a doubling in some cases. Uh, that's right, from uh, pay, from uh, yeah. uh, from but they currently earn of about 172,000 euro per annum so that was where it stood so significant disruption for Ryanair passengers now there is still some disruption today because Ryanair's Portuguese cabin crew are on strike They, they began today while the airline is also seeking to prevent BALPA, the British Airline Pilots Union, from striking in the UK. Uh, that is in front of the High Court in the UK and we don't know the outcome of that just yet.
3: OK, and they're going to, they were due to strike on the same days as the Irish pilots uh, were, were going to go out and strike. Anyway, good news, uh, at least in the short term, for um, passengers who are planning to use Ryanair on Thursday and Friday. Now, we're going to um, switch to Facebook and they've introduced a new feature um, in relation to the way that data was being gathered and a lot of people probably wouldn't understand how uh, this data was being gathered so just explain it all because it's right. a little if bit you're, convoluted.
1: if you're booking a hotel if you're using booking.com you'll have gone onto the website and that data will then have you'll have seen ads then on Facebook from booking.com or if you're trying to buy shoes you'll have seen
3: ads from yeah. the shoes. This is if you're amp. using your smartphone your tablet etc. Yeah
1: or your computer indeed so yeah. these, these ads effectively follow you around the web
3: I'm presuming you have a Facebook Facebook account, right?
1: Indeed. You have to be on Facebook, you have to be logged in. But these are your your cookies on your account. So the data follows you around the web. So what this new feature will do, it'll prevent Facebook from gathering that data from those third-party websites and apps. Um, they want to increase transparency for their users after a spate of scandals, including the Cambridge Analytica issues. Uh, but what this does uh, is It effectively delinks the data from your account. So if you are searching for a new pair of shoes, uh, Facebook won't know that it's from you. Facebook will still get the data. It just won't
3: be linked to your account. So, I mean... Now, do you have to actively go in and switch this off? That's right. Or choose this yeah. this new tool? And- or does it happen automatically?
1: No, th- this is why it's unclear what sort of... For example, there could be some damage to Facebook's ad business, but one would have to think that there won't be because people have to go and proactively turn this feature on to de-link that data. And that's why some of the uh, cybersecurity or, or, uh, analysts have been relatively cynical about it. Fred Logue, the solicitor who specialises in information law, said that it's hard to take anything that Facebook does uh, at face value. It sounds on the face of it like... Not a bad feature for users, but uh, it's unclear. If it's not going to impact Facebook's business, then it probably isn't going to be wonderful. And they're the still going to push ads
3: at you, right? It just won't be ads based on data gathered from other apps or websites. Exactly. They won't be as targeted. Um,
1: they won't be as targeted because that, that data won't be following you around. And and Facebook will still get all the information. It right. just won't relate to you.
3: I think it's fair to say a lot of people will be shocked to realise that Facebook has been gathering data from their browsing They're non-Facebook browsing on their phones, on their tablets, etc. It's actually been gathering all of this uh, data and pushing ads towards them.
1: Well, I suppose data is king and it's not just Facebook who are doing this. Uh, Most
3: websites are collecting cookies on you and and, and trying to... Sure, but that's usually about the activity Mm. that takes place on their website or via their app. But Facebook was actually getting data from other apps, other websites that have nothing to do with Facebook. And they were then using that data to push ads towards you. Well I suppose the key thing is that Facebook
1: is this free service but it's not really free because what you give away yeah. in turn for using it is your data and and ultimately that is quite pricey. It certainly does quite well for Facebook's business. So I suppose user needs, users need to be aware of the fact that while they're not attaching a monetary value to Facebook they're giving away a hell of a lot of information.
3: Okay. Now Hershey, a big uh, chocolate and snack brand in the United States Um, And they've taken a very significant stake in an Irish company. Tell us
1: about that. Yeah, that's right. They've taken a significant minority stake in the snack brand Fulfill, which people may be familiar with, what they are a protein chocolate bar company. Um, A healthy alternative to just eating a a bar of dairy milk, I guess. So Hershey is, as you said, they're America's largest chocolate and snacks brand. And in an effort to expand their reach outside of North America, they've taken a, a share in Fulfill. Now, It also suggests that this Fulfill will now attempt to bridge the gap across the Atlantic and get some share in the US market. Um, For example, this year alone, they're expected to deliver consumer sales of close to 100 million, which is very significant for a brand that is not long in existence. Mm. Um, For... Hershey, as I mentioned, the the, uh, company which is controlled by a family trust, has had quite poor European representation. Just 11% of their sales at present uh, are outside North America. So this is clearly a strategic push for them to enter new markets with a product that is not typical to what they had. It's a healthier option to straightforward chocolate.
3: Yeah, sure. Okay. Now, you've been doing some research on CEO Pay, looking at some of the largest companies in Ireland and comparing what the bosses make effectively, to what um, workers uh, in the company as a whole make. And you've found quite a bit of, uh, quite a large gap. Yeah, there is quite a large gap. I mean, the bosses of Ireland's top 20 companies, and we've used the Isaac
1: 20 constituents here, they secured pay rises of 13%. So they, the average CEO salary last year was 1.87 million, while employees, the average salary was 45,316 euro. And they got a pay rise of just 1.5%. It's quite significant. Uh, Now, it is worth noting that it is considerably less than elsewhere. If we look to the UK, CEO salaries were down actually in the UK by 13%. So, they went down by the same amount that they went up here. But CEOs still earned 117 times more than the average UK worker. um, While in the US, it was worse. Again, bosses of the largest 350 companies, they earned 278 times more than the pay of their average worker. So... The Irish position isn't as bad as it initially looks. However, that 13% rise wasn't seen in the Isaac 20 index. Their earnings outpaced the performance of the index. Uh, it's difficult to know what that 13% rise is linked to.
3: Mm. Uh, perhaps slightly skewed by the fact that our manifold of CRH he gets a very large remuneration every year. No, uh, his pay was down in the year, uh,
1: so so the percentage change would have fallen as a result. Sure, of but that. he still
3: is his remuneration eight point yeah. two million. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Which eight point two million. Substantially more, I would suggest. I mean, uh, Francesca McDonald's just under a million euro. For example, that's right. she runs uh, Bank of Ireland, so that's more than eight times uh, what she's getting.
1: Yeah, no, that's correct. I mean, there are. Um, the, he is the his his earnings are quite significant by. A significant gap um, they weren't so significant last year when you had uh, Kerry Group stalwart Stan McCarthy who was, was there for some time but there was still a gap uh, now the second highest earner is Michael O'Leary or in this survey was Michael O'Leary with 3.37 uh, 3, million and just behind him was Tony Smurfit. so I mean no absolutely you're right there is a big gap between first and second um but, I mean, Albert Manifold did take a pay cut, which, which uh, certainly would have affected the change ever so slightly. But. So it's worth noting, sorry, as well, that CRH employ 89,000 staff. So um,
3: Worldwide. Not in yeah. of course. No, indeed, indeed. Yeah, indeed. All right. Okay, well, listen, uh, some interesting statistics from that, Peter. Uh, maybe we'll pick that up in a year's time, um, if we're both still around to do that. And, uh, thank you in the meantime. Thanks. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to economist Chris Johns and Fergus O'Brien of IBEC about Brexit and Budget 2020. Back in a few moments.
2: Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.au or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
3: Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, earlier this week, Irish Times columnist Chris Johns wrote a hard-hitting piece about how Britain is facing a future as a failed state post-Brexit. This comes as Boris Johnson, Leo Varadkar and the European Commission face off on Brexit. So what does all this posturing mean for Ireland? Will the UK leave on a no-deal basis at the end of October? And what does this uncertainty mean for Budget 2020, which will be delivered by Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunahoo, on October 8th? Chris Johns, I'll start with you. Uh, In your column, uh, I mean, you didn't pull your punches. You said that Britain is facing a future as a failed state post-Brexit. Why do you think that?
2: Well, actually, I was quoting some other writers um, who've been posing that very question in recent weeks. And I was just reflecting whether or not it was too sensationalist. And it got quite a lot of feedback, actually, um, mostly from people in Ireland who said, yeah, you're being too sensationalist. How could you possibly say failed state when that brings to mind countries like Argentina, Argentina, Venezuela, um, and and the list um, is a familiar one. I think it depends what you mean by failed state. Um, the two senses in which I mean it first are um, when a prime minister is threatening to run over, uh, run a coach and horses over the constitution, it's unwritten though it is, um, and prorogue parliament, all of those sorts of things that uh, we, we read about every day. That's the sense in which I meant it. Um, the other, um, it, it only Yesterday, um, an Oxford professor of economics, a guy called Simon Wren-Lewis, well worth reading his blog if anybody's interested in this kind of thing, Um, he also suggested that Britain already is a failed state in the sense that um, policies um, that will most definitely bring great harm to the country are being actively pursued by the elected government of the day and that are clearly supported by around half the population. So that's a particular definition of failed state, doing great harm to yourself um, by the elected representatives who are actually doing it, who receive great support. Um, it's one definition of failed state, but I think it will do. And I think that's essentially why I think the description fits.
3: What's your assessment of Boris Johnson's um, declarations, uh, if you like, about Brexit? Um, he has He's given us conflicting um, declarations uh, in some respects, on the one hand, he says we have to leave by October 31st and it'd be a failure if we don't. Uh, and yet, on the other, he says uh, there's a million to one chance um, that we will leave on a no deal. Um, so, suggesting that there will be a deal and there will be a compromise uh, from the European Union. And yet, there's no sense uh, from the European Union side that any compromise is coming, certainly on the withdrawal agreement, maybe on the political declaration. Trying to second-guess his strategy is something
2: that we're all at. And, of course, we, we can only try to guess what it is. And those guesses range from he doesn't actually have one, um, it's that incoherent, um, to uh, my favourite, which is that he thinks that um, Europe is going to blink and throw Ireland under the bus. Um, I don't think that's likely at all, but I, I do think that uh, the evidence is that's the strategy that he's pursuing. I think his fallback position, if not his... First position is that the general election is clearly coming and the only issue really is whether it happens before or after October the 31st and that kind of depends on this game that's being played if the European Union does blink he doesn't have to hold an early election he can hold it um, triumphantly once the European Union has caved as I say given that that's not likely to happen the timing of the election will probably be driven by what happens in the the British Parliament I think he's made a strategic error though all of this smacks of Dominic Cummings Mm. All of this smacks... He's a very
3: strategic thinker. A I mean, very strategic he thinker. He was one of the key guys behind he was the Leave campaign. The right?
2: key guy behind the success of the Leave campaign. Johnson, from what we know about him as mayor of London, was a great delegator, which is a polite way of saying he's not a details man and uh, likes to float, float above uh, getting his hands dirty on details and the, and the hard grind of policy making. And I think he's delegated all of this to Cummings. All of this stuff that Johnston and the rest of the cabinet are saying looks to me like it's being orchestrated by Cummings. And so the bet is, having got it right once, but Cummings is going to get it right again. And I wonder whether Johnston has made a strategic error because it looks to me like overreach at the moment. The way in which he's bet that the European Union is going to act in a particular way looks to have been the wrong bet. So I just wonder whether this this gamble on Cummings will actually come back to haunt him.
3: Fergal, there's a very real chance now that we're going to have a no-deal Brexit. Is Irish business prepared for that?
4: Um, the risks have definitely increased, Karen. There's absolutely no doubt about that. There's still a whole range of scenarios that could play out here. So we're, we're, we're grappling with uncertainty. That's the reality of it. Um, to Chris's observation in the future of the UK which is something we really got to worry about. Um, I think ultimately there is an argument here that the UK might become a very successful state, when they get away from all of this. But that's going to take a lot of time. It's inescapable to us when we see the benefits that the single market and EU membership have brought to us, right, as business community, as an economy, as a society. As indeed they brought to the UK? Exactly, right? These are collective benefits. It's inescapable that the short-term costs are going to be very substantive. So that's going to be really bad for Irish business. In terms of prepared for a no-deal um, business, is not prepared for it. I don't think it can be prepared for it. We don't know what the destination is. That remains the reality. And our underlying view is that whatever the scenario, deal or no deal, we have to have a transition period. In particular, when you look at the complexity that we're going to face to preserve the all-island economy, there is no way that we can put the systems the processes in place in nine or ten weeks' time to manage the all-island economy. The well, why haven't no deal? we done it to date? I mean, we've had three years. Because, because we don't know north. what the destination is. We don't know where we're going to. And sitting here facing the 1st of September, we still don't know what the destination is. But surely and, businesses and the government should have been preparing for a
3: no-deal Brexit as a worst-case scenario for the past three years. So why do we find ourselves in a situation nine or ten weeks out where we don't have the systems and process. Like, I accept that you're not going to have everything in place.
4: Yep. We could have had a lot of ducks in a row at this stage. And we have. So a lot of work has been done. There's a lot of companies that are prepared for trading with the UK as a third country, right? And there's a lot of companies that will be able to do that. Can you give us any examples? The, well, so that they've put systems in place now in which they can treat the UK as a third country. And in particular for for companies that are dealing globally anyway and are trading right across the world. It's going to be easy for them. For the SMEs that have only ever dealt... With the European market and within the European single market, that's a lot more complex and they're still in the process of getting up to speed. Are they all there yet? Absolutely not. So have we wasted time over the last three years? I don't think so, right? Because we've been doing those kind of no regret strategies, right? Right. But we still do not know what the destination is going to look like, either in terms of the bilateral relationship or for the all-island economy. And that means it's incredibly complex, if not impossible, for any organisation or for the government to actually be ready for a no-deal exit on the 1st of November. When we know what that destination is, then let's take the time to adjust to it. Now, this isn't getting into the managed kind of no-deal... Um, kind of softness that, that, that some of the UK might like to see this has been pragmatic that from an Irish business from a European economy perspective whenever we reach a situation in terms of knowing what the future destination is then we plan for it if that's a deal with a transition or a no deal with a time to adjust business will need time So I think the question is what are you preparing for because you can't
2: prepare for No Deal, because No Deal is not an end state. No Deal is not a, a, a position of equilibrium which is going to last for a long period of time. So you can't prepare for that. Um, you've got to prepare for what happens. Well, eventually. You can prepare for tariffs? No. You can, you can. Yes, but which ones and when? And uh, you know, they won't last because a deal will have to be done between the UK and the European Union. So you're going to. So yes, you're preparing for something that could last for a short period of time, a long period of time. Who knows? May not happen at all. So when you don't know what you're actually preparing for, I think I have some sympathy for the fact that they, you know, you're saying that the ducks should have been put in a row. What ducks, what row
3: would be the question I throw back at you. OK, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, Fergal, you, you, you're talking to your members at IBEC uh, on a, a regular basis, I'm sure, and you've been crunching some numbers around this. How much damage would a no-deal
4: Brexit do to the Irish economy and to Irish business in short term, at least? Um. I must admit, looking into 2020, we just see a lot of softness on the horizon coming from kind of multiple perspectives. Uh, It's very clear we've had an amazing global run um, over a decade. That looks like wind is definitely running out of the sails there. Um, We think we've got big threats coming in terms of the global tax environment. That's going to to impact on the Irish economy quite significant. We think that reform of tax through the OECD is a really, really big play for the Irish economy. And then we got Brexit. So there's kind of multiple hours coming at us. Um, I think all of them have the risk of knocking quite um, quite a share of off growth over the next couple of years. So what kind of growth um, do you think so, next year? So if, if we're just dealing with Brexit, right, Even and even if we're just dealing, say, if we, we do get a no deal before the end of, of 2019, and that's what we got to deal with next year. I still think the economy will grow next year. We'll still be in expansionary territory. Um, what kind of number? Y- one to two range. Right. That's what I think we would see, even in a no deal Brexit scenario, Um, assuming that the global economy doesn't go off a cliff. But beneath that, and again, the Irish GDP numbers, as you know, hide an awful lot of, 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 of underlying factors. The real the real, I think, indicator of what's happening in terms of the observable health of the Irish economy is going to be job creation we would see job creation in a no-deal scenario at a fraction of what it is this year. Hmm. Maybe one-fifth of what it is this year. And I think that's probably a more reasonable measure. Because And what about job losses? Uh, you're going to see job losses in some sectors of the economy. You know, look, the the UK is not as important to us now as it was 20 or 30 years ago. It is still incredibly important for certain sectors of the economy. Agri-food, traditional engineering, manufacturing. The UK is incredibly important. It is labour-intensive in terms of the nature of the exports to the UK, much more so than exports to pretty much any other market we're dealing with because of the type of goods uh, and services that we're selling there. Um, and I think... You know, as we get into talk about Budget 2020, we haven't done enough as a country to be prepared to have those emergency measures, to keep those companies on life support and the employees in those companies connected to their jobs in those industries that are going to be particularly affected. That that worries me quite a lot, actually.
3: Yeah, we've had some scenarios laying out sort of suggesting that job loss could be of the magnitude of somewhere between 50 and 100,000. Would you go along with that narrative?
4: It's, it's really hard to call, right? Um, look, there's going to be, you're going to have job losses. That's unquestionable. We still think we would have modest employment growth next year, but it would be quite modest and you will have significant job loss in some sectors. That's if we do nothing. You know, if we go back to the experience of over 10 years ago when, when the financial crisis hit, look at those countries that took really sensible measures. And again, I'd point to Germany in particular, right? Where they kept companies operating and crucially they kept employees connected to those companies they put them on training schemes they put them on short-term working but they kept them connected and they kept the industrial base intact and if our food industry our traditional manufacturing if it's going to have such a significant shock as a no deal or a hard brexit then we're going to need to preserve the industrial base because if you lose a base those companies don't come back not in those sectors that are so capital intensive
3: Chris, if you're Pascal Donahue and you're looking at the budget on October 8th and uh, staring down the barrel of a no deal Brexit, um, what do you do in budget terms? I go to
2: Brussels and say, can I um, throw all the old rules out of the window, please? And, and um, when they say no, I think I think the mood music, the noises, obviously, it's all unofficial, suggests that Brussels will, will be very sympathetic to that kind of a request. Um, it's the, it, the time has come to spend. And that's what a hard Brexit means for this country. It means to borrow some more money than we were planning to do so, support those sectors that are going to be hardest hit as best we can, imaginatively, not just throwing money at it um, uh, in an irresponsible way, but obviously we have to th- do this thoughtfully. But also more generally, I think we have to spend money to... to, to um, that, that 1% growth rate The Fogel mentioned is perfectly plausible. Um, who knows? It's forecasting. You know my thoughts on how difficult that is. Um, but the economy is going to need a boost. And the government and you know you are in a perfect position now, having done all the fiscal hard work to get the budget back to balance, small surplus that we're in at the moment. Yes, debt levels are high, but interest rates, bond yields are very low. You could get away tons of borrowing at the moment at very low interest rates, so very low future costs to Irish taxpayers. Um hard Brexit means now this
3: is the time to do it. Yeah, and Conor O'Kelly, who's head of the NTMA, which manages their national debt. Uh, he keeps highlighting to us the fact that we already have debt of 200 uh, billion on our books um, and we really don't want to be irresponsible in this fashion we really don't want to go adding to it we need to be very careful very prudent
2: i agree with some of that and all of it i mean it it's partly his job to say things like that in in fairness and but but he's right to say that we have to do it prudently we have to do it responsibly we just can't blow a budget deficit on um you know current expenditure it should be capital spending investment as much you know as much as anything else um but the peculiar situation in global debt markets means that that high debt level, he's absolutely right, it is high. But it, at the moment and for the foreseeable future, it doesn't really matter.
3: Chris, give us your thought on these inverted uh, bond yields and, and what it means, because um, you know we've had concerns that um, we're heading for a global recession um, and that the US is going to be sucked into this as well. Are we in that territory? The, ironically, the U.S. isn't. The U.S. is growing at 2 to
2: 3% at the moment, probably nearer 2 than 3%. So um, why everybody's getting so exercised about the States, I've no idea. The, the, the place to worry about is Europe. Um, and the, Germany. Ger- Germany has had a quarter of negative growth. The U.K. has had a quarter of negative growth. We've got a political crisis in Italy. Um, we've got some very old-fashioned European problems going on. Germany's been squeezed by a number of things, not least Brexit, it's 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 hurt them already. Just as it's hurt the UK already, it's hurt all of Europe already. Um, Germany's got a problem because of diesel cars. Um, it makes too many of them and hasn't made the switch to um, electric and and non diesel uh, technologies. Um, and it's been hurt by Trump's trade war with China. Germany is the biggest exporting nation's proportion of its GDP of the majors. It's you know exports matter more to Germany than they do to China. Mm. Exports matter much more to Germany than they do to. to Trump's United States, the, the United States relative to Germany is a closed economy, so that's the sense in which Trump does win his trade wars. So trade wars, um diesel, a whole host of factors have caused Germany to to, to, to slow down, um, and and that's 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 the real problem. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why we have the, the peculiar situation in, in global bond markets. um Countries don't go into a recession. Because the yield curve inverts, you know it, it, what the yield curve inversion means is that bond yields are very, very low. Um, uh, bond yields overpredict a bit, like stock markets. You know they'll, they'll get sometimes they'll get it right, but just as often they'll get it wrong. Um, I think that there's a good chance that Europe's going to have a technical recession. Um, it doesn't look like it to me at the moment, anyway. Unless Trump does something spectacularly stupid again with with China, um, he could he could flick that switch tomorrow and call the whole trade war off and generate a mini boom that would sort him out for his election next year if, if only he had the sense. Maybe he's just waiting until the beginning of next year to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his, what, what his tactics, what his psychology for this actually are. But at the moment, he's harming his electoral prospects by this trade war with China. And if he continues with it, then the U.S. is at risk of, of, of a recession. So, yeah, the, the growth is clearly uh, a problem out there, um, but it's more of a European Than an American one,
3: and is the old way of thinking about a recession—you know, two quarters of uh, negative growth um, equals recession—is that the right way to be thinking about recession these days? That's a statistical artifact. I
2: think one of the things that everybody's so paranoid about recession at the moment is that they remember the last one. In a way, that's all we ever remember is the last one. The last one was just so horrible for everybody. It was very nearly, I mean, in some cases, it actually was. Worse than the 1930s, depending on which country you look at. And it was an absolutely ghastly experience. The fact is, recessions are always horrible, but, you know, s- some are worse than others. And if it's a common or garden variety recession, it's actually not, um, nearly t- not, not something we should worry about in the way that people seem to be at the moment. People seem to be when they're saying, oh, we're, we're heading into a global recession it seems to be a shorthand, oh, we're going to have another global financial crisis because we're so scarred by the last one. We're not, in my opinion, going to have one of those. Um, if, if there is a recession, um, it's not to be welcomed. It's to be fought with every policy tool that we've got. Um, I certainly think that. But equally, I don't think it is going to be anything like as gut-wrenching as it, 10 years ago it would
4: be truly exceptional if it was you know that was mm. once and a half once and a half a century once in a century event Right? Mm. you would not expect to see that so but close again scarred in, by in, it, we are we? we are scarred
3: that's why we remember you know yeah. um, fair. put yourself in Pascal Dunhu's shoes if you think a no deal Brexit is a very live prospect what would you do in budget 2020 when it's delivered on October 8th
4: um, I think there's a couple of no regrets things that we need to do anyway. As, as Chris was saying, there's lots of investment that needs to be done in the economy. We really need to focus on the productive stuff. Whatever we're going to spend now, particularly in an uncertain environment... We have to believe that we're going to be maximising the kind of economic return from that. So spending on what kind of areas? Give us some examples. Our our infrastructure deficits are still very significant. You know, we're talking about, again, the potential challenges for the regions in the context of a no-deal Brexit, right? They are going to be more affected um, than the Dublin economy in particular. We still have not finished the infrastructure provision in the regions. We've got to go ahead and do that. Um, Our our innovation performance, and again, you know, we'll talk about the type of supports that companies might need in the event of a no-deal Brexit. A lot of it is about just getting further up that kind of value chain in terms of uh, in, in innovation, performance and capacity. Um, as an economy we're definitely not there yet in terms of being one of the most innovative economies, which is what we should aspire to. In terms of education, we're very worried. We've about, got to spend on you know,
2: universities. We you know, have I'm to. I'm
4: really worried about it. You look at what's happening to our international rankings in terms of universities. Look, You can pick holes in terms of the metrics and the measures. The reality is, the perception is feeding this as well, right? Chris, um, should we reintroduce fees?
3: I know we have fees in a way in, oh, in, in terms of the registration uh, some that everybody has to has to pay. But should we just be honest with people and, and reintroduce uh, free fees for universities?
2: As you say, we have them, you know, three grand a year. Um, in the UK, it's nine. We're doing sterling versus euro. They're about the same these days. Um, I think what, you know, we have to be pragmatic and, and ask what's politically possible. I think the government has to you know, devote more resources to the university sector. Inevitably, individuals are going to have to find some money as well. So it's going to be a little bit of both. But I would look to the government to lead this, not, uh, not fees.
4: Right. Okay. We're an incredibly wealthy society now, right, in, in, in a global context. Our universities are not operating at the level with the type of resources that they deserve, given the opportunity that's in the society and this economy. Does Ibeck think that fees should be reintroduced? we need a proper funding mechanism ultimately fees and loan might might be part of that solution but we actually have the money right now when you look at the corporate tax bonanza we have had you know we reckon this is 13 to 14 billion <laughs> over the last four years of a surprise that's more than the Apple judgment, right? So 30 into 14 billion of an upside surprise That's what we've gotten through corporate tax in the last four years. You've got to ask ourselves the question, how have we used those resources? Unfortunately, most of that surprise money has gone into day-to-day spending, predominantly into health and other current spending. We really need to recalibrate that, accept. Uh, ex- that that's not going to last forever. We may get a few more good years out of it. If we do get those good years, let's make sure we're investing for the future. Education, innovation, infrastructure, they're the key three words that will make us more productive and competitive in the future. Yeah, no. people will
3: expect some tax cuts as well. They will expect the minister to give them a few more quid in their pocket.
4: So what do you think he should do on that front? There's a lot. There's a lot more quid in people's pockets out there at the moment, right, when you look at what's happening right now. But look at the num- look at the numbers, here in terms of what's happening to disposable household income over the last five years, increasing by one quarter. This has been bonanza there. That's in real terms, right? We actually haven't seen that kind of increase in disposable income apart from a, a short period at the end of the 1990s. Once we went into the noughties, pretty much inflation started to eat it up, right? So we've had no inflation, we've had growing employment and growing growing incomes. So and the the household numbers demonstrate this. In five years, disposable real household income is up a quarter, right? So I don't I don't think that's the priority. There are other things you might want to do in your labor market and we'd argue that marginal taxes are still very high for t- trying to attract mobile talent, for example, right? So there's arguments for for competitiveness-based tax adjustment in terms of the give back. The economy's actually been looking after that very well over the last five years. And we make the comparison against the UK on the basis of latest household surveys, disposable incomes in Ireland are now 50% above those in the yeah. UK. Well, you can is, say that, This, Fergal, is, and this is spectacular. This you is can spectacular look at surveys,
3: you can quote surveys till blue in the face, but the fact is there are a lot of people out there, young people in particular, who don't feel any better off than they were five years ago um, and who some, are some paying of the, some to the nose for rent I, and they have no chance of getting a property, of own, ever owning a property. That's the way they so, feel so, about but it. But you've got to go to the root of the problem. then you, you can sort the property thing out
2: which obviously is going to take a long time, um, then you would sort a lot, a lot of the, the, the underlying reasons why people feel um, as as you described. But I think that we need to be very careful more generally about thinking about policy here. It goes back to your earlier question about fees and more generally about taxation. We do a lot of things very well in this country. We beat ourselves up um, a lot, but we do do things um, very well. We don't want to create, for example, the, the problems that both the United States and the United Kingdom have with the university fee thing, which just ends up with an awful lot of underemployed graduates with huge debts around their neck. We cannot go down down that route. So a combination of you know modest fees... And government support is, is, is what, what is required. Um, and uh, there, are re- there are reasons to moan about the Irish tax system. Absolutely. Too high marginal rates. Not enough people pay tax at all. Um, but generally speaking, we also need to balance these kind of remarks with this is a system that does an, an awful lot to get around the problems that tax systems elsewhere help to create. We, as you know, the famous statistic is that no other OECD country does more to redistribute for its tax and welfare system than Ireland. And that's a reason to pat ourselves on the back. So if there is something to be done with the tax system, it's tinkering around at the edges at the moment, given other policy priorities. It it, it isn't fundamentally broken. It needs tweaking, absolutely. But therefore, it doesn't need fundamentally fixing. The priorities, as Fögel said, has got to be capital spending in this economy, on industry, on infrastructure. And that's where the government should be focusing its political capital and priorities.
3: And what about corporation tax? Because the top 10 billion euro for the first time ever last year. Um, there's obviously a lot more money coming in from uh, the multinationals now. But we have this process going on at the OECD level um, where they're they're looking at uh, some sort of uh, global tax system to capture um, the digital activity that's going on in our economies uh, at the minute. And that could have a serious impact on Ireland.
2: It could, and it will. Um,
3: we know it's not going to last.
2: Um, the right way to think about our corporation tax base is it's a bit like um, when the... Uh, the Norwe- norwegians and the brits discovered north sea oil they discovered it and they knew that it's a it's a it's a finite resource that one day it'll run out as it is indeed doing right now the brits spent the money blew it and the norwegians created a sovereign wealth fund which would you have rather have done with the corporation tax revenues which is exactly the same way same kind of thing it was a, a temporary resource that uh, was was unexpected we discovered it it's a bit like discovering oil in the ground um, once we've used it up, what would you rather have done? Spent it on uh, capital investment, created a sovereign wealth fund, or blown it? At the moment, it looks like we're going to have blown it because it ain't going to last.
4: I, I agree with you that it is a resource. And we have a lot of those actions, a Temporary, uh, of a resource economy. That's where I'm not so sure, Chris. I think that you know, if, if right, you see the... A proportion of it is if, temporary. If, if, if you think that maybe intellectual property is the most important resource in the global economy right now, if we can use the proceeds that we're currently getting for what might be temporary to reinvest in the capability and the capacity of that intellectual property in the future, then we can actually be much more successful and prosperous in the future. So it's it's definitely I don't I don't agree that it's as finite as the aisle and the aisle is gone. It's gone, right? There are risks ahead. So we see big risks in terms of this global tax reform. And ultimately, you know, what what some of the major economies are trying to do is they're trying to Change the rules of taxa- taxation so the profits will be allocated to markets on the basis of where consumers are, in essence, so that rather than where value is created. A loss of tax revenue, and, that, and that's a big risk for us, right? But if we can invest some of that money back into that intellectual, intellectual pro- pro- property capacity around education, the skills and the innovation, then you can definitely soften that blow. So it may not have to be as finite as the aisle on the ground. So invest it, don't spend it. Exactly.
3: And OK, great. and at the minute it is being spent uh, to a large degree on health services, uh, uh, overruns and so forth. And I no doubt they're going to uh, continue in the short term. Um, just finally, let's go back to Brexit. How do you think Leo Varadkar is doing, uh, Fergal?
4: Um, I think the government's doing a great job uh, on Brexit. Um, we have some misgivings around terms of the clarity of supports that we're going to need. Have we overplayed our I've, hand on the backstop? I think it was absolutely the right call. Um, business very much sees it as absolutely the right call in terms of there's no other way we're going to preserve the all island economy, which is just so crucial. And this is not just about stuff in boxes going across the border. This is about the, the, the full functioning of the all island economy. It's about society. It's about so many different things. Right. We needed that insurance policy. We, we cannot we cannot accept a political intention that we're not going to have disruption in the all-island economy. And the backstop was the mechanism after years of looking at this. And don't forget, it took a long time to get there. And that was the mechanism that Europe uh, with the UK agreed. We think it was the right mechanism. Um, and government has been right to, to stick to the line on that because the potential risks go far beyond impacting on just those companies that sell to Northern Ireland. This is about the future of the all-island economy, all-island society, peace and prosperity. And it's crucially important for everyone here. Chris, how's Leveracker done in these Brexit negotiations?
3: I think he's played a blinder, um, and I think
2: he's come in for a lot of very unfair criticism. Uh, Specifically, for example, um, I know elsewhere there's been a lot of criticism that if if only he'd given away a time-limited backstop, um, that we could have, the Brits could have got the with Theresa May could have got the withdrawal agreement through, and we'd have had transition periods and her version of soft Brexit. Um, That I think is vulnerable to a couple of criticisms. First. It's alternative history. It's saying that if only we'd done this, then this would have happened. And that's a bit like economic forecasting. You should be very careful about about, about trying to reinvent the past. My own sense is that if we made one concession on the backstop – then the hard Brexiteers would have just come back looking for even more and we'd have got ourselves into an even worse negotiating position and it would have been just the first crack in in, in, a, in the dam that then would have burst. So, um, no, I don't think he should have made concessions on the backstop in the way that some people are arguing that he should. And I think, generally speaking, he's pursued the only path that he could have done and I think he's done it very well.
3: Yeah, no, earlier this year, there seemed to be uh, a certain swell of momentum behind uh, the possibility of... a. Uh, Another referendum, or finding some mechanism for Britain to remain in the European Union. Has that, is that gone now? Yes. Um, is Brexit I, 100% inevitable at this stage?
2: No, nothing. is. Death and taxes are the only two things that are 100% inevitable. Um, the, the, we are in a very febrile situation in the United Kingdom. I think that one of the, one of the interesting things is the, that we should conclude is that for as long as Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, which may not be very long, of course, but for as long as he is, we're definitely going to get a hard border whichever way you think about it that unless we get a hard border um i i do think he and the hard border go together because his his policy at the moment is is forcing us to put it put it up rather than rather than them that that that's that's one conclusion that that i've reached um the the uh, the only way that it's not going to happen on october the 31st is if there's a different government and that has to be via a general election um uh, but most routes that we can see are to October the 31st and hard Brexit. That seems to me to be
4: um, – it ain't 100 percent, but it's odds on. Or postponement, Chris. And we've seen right through this process the capacity to extend and postpone the hard uh, yeah, decisions. And I, we, we may well see that again.
2: I wonder whether – if they ask for a postponement, whether they would get mm. one this time,
4: mm.
3: I think the Europe would say what for? Maybe a general election. Well, let me just ask you very quickly then, deal or no deal by October 31st, Fergal?
4: I I think we'll probably be looking at more time, I must admit.
3: Chris? I think that it's
2: no deal on October 31st.
3: Okay, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Chris Johnson, Fergal O'Brien. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon, as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Ciarán Hancock. Until next time, take care.
4: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods